Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Our main passage today, if you do have your Bibles, is going to be rooted in Ephesians 5, um, starting in verse 25. I'm just going to read the first verse. We're going to walk through more of it, but it'll just kind of tee us up. um, And for brevity's sake, we're just going to read kind of one verse at a time. So here we go. Um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's going to be kind of the theme for us today as we focus on husbands in the households. And we are in a series, like I mentioned, called Households That Change the World. And the central focus, kind of the, the line of sight, kind of the, 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 the scope that we're looking down is Matthew 6, 33, as it relates to all different facets of the family and the household. It says these words, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so what we see from the scriptures is that God is changing the world, and he's changing the world through the advancement of his kingdom. That is his rule and his reign in the world. And so we see that God is having this ever-expanding influence and care and thriving in the world. And what we see is that households, individual households, regardless of whether you're a household of one or a household of a hundred, you can have the opportunity to join God as he is changing the world, or you can not do that. And so that's why we're saying that it's households that change the world is actually us partnering with God as he is already changing the world. And in this series, we're addressing two different narratives on the household that are prevailing in our culture that are actually countering the kingdom of God. The first narrative that we see is called the modern secular narrative. Um, that, That essentially says that individualism and freedom is the most important thing in your life. And so if you are constrained, if you're constrained by marriage, constrained by children, constrained by caring for aged parents or aged relatives, then then you must be a captive, right? And so the ultimate value is freedom and flexibility, and your household needs to support your freedom and flexibility. But there's a counter narrative to that that's prevalent in our culture, especially in the culture here in Clarksville, and that's the traditional or religious narrative. And that essentially says that the nuclear family is the most important thing in your life. And so really what that says is that we value this appearance of stability. We value the appearance of being put together, especially to the detriment of authenticity and self-sacrificing service towards others. It essentially says my family is the most important thing and I need to be put together in order for others around me to respect me. So what happens with both of these narratives, they're, they're actually building two kingdoms that are in opposition to the kingdom of God. So they're in opposition to Jesus's kingdom. The first one is a kingdom of happiness through the idol of freedom. Do you see how that works? That says I can only be happy through this idea of me perceiving that I'm free. And as long as I'm free, then I'll be happy. And if I'm constrained, then I'm a captive. But then there's also another kingdom that gets built. It says that I have this kingdom of love, right? Look at me. I'm a husband. Look at me. I'm a wife. Look at me. I'm a father or a mother. I am worthy of being respected because look at how I love 
um, my, my marriage and my children, but really is, is an appearance thing. It's the idol of appearance. It's saying that I appear to be put together because I am married and I have children. And what we see is that the gospel opposes both of these narratives and how the gospel says that we can be completely free by being a cat captive to Christ by selfless sacrifice, and that the, the nuclear family is only a part of how God uses and is using his kingdom to change and influence the world. And so today we're looking at husbands in the household. Now, I, I want to encourage us for a second. We all need to hear this message today. Every person, regardless of your family dynamic, needs to understand husbands in the household. And I want to give kind of an argument as to why you shouldn't click off of this, why you really, you, regardless of where you are, you really can use this and, and be benefited by this. So single women, if you're watching this, if you're a single woman, you're, you're probably either single by choice, by calling, by being divorced, or by being widowed. And, and so if you are joining us and you are a single woman by choice, by divorce, or by being widowed, and you want to get married or remarried, you have that desire in you, then this is vitally important for you because what you need to see is what the Bible actually says about the role of husbands. You need to have a level of expectation for the men that you are going to be dating, the men that you are engaged to, the men that you might potentially one day be married to. You need to have a level of expectation of what they should be doing. Now, if you are single uh, for any reason and you do not have a desire to get married, you don't have a desire to join with a man and have a husband, um, then here's why this is important for you. You need to be able to counsel your married friends. You will often have people come to you, maybe even in the unique position that you're in in your life, um, where you can be a trusted confidant. And what you need to know is what the Bible says about the expectations of husbands so that you can counsel your married friends and help them in their marriages. If you're a married woman, again, this is very important for you to listen because you need to have an expectation. Um, you need to have high standards for your husband. And then you also need to be able to encourage him that he can meet those standards if he follows Jesus. So this is very important for you. Single men, you can be single, again, as with a single woman, by choice, by calling, by being divorced or being widowed. And for you, this is preparation, okay? If you desire to have a wife and expand your household, then what this needs to be is a preparation time for you. And this is really helpful for you to see where you need to be going, where you need to be moving forward in your singleness if you so desire to be married. Now, if you're not desiring to be married, that's totally fine. But you also need this, again, like the single women, to be able to counsel your married friends, to be able to counsel your married friends who are husbands and help encourage them and spur them on towards this vision of a godly husband. And of course, married men, this is specifically targeted towards you today. And um, I will say that I was even feeling a level of conviction as I was prepping the sermon. And here's the deal. You probably need to change in some way, shape, or form. So you might notice that my tone will shift a little bit today. And I am primarily speaking to men, although everyone in the room needs to hear this, right? So everyone will be benefited by this, but I'm primarily speaking to married men. And I, I, I want you to understand my heart going into this. My heart going into this is not to be harsh, it is to be direct. And I think there is a problem with directness in the church as it relates to men. So you'll notice my tone is going to shift a little bit, and that is because I want to be very direct with you. I have talked to 
every single man in our church about the things I'm going to be talking to you about today. This is just more concise, but none of this is going to come to the surprise to any of the men who I've had a continual relationship with in our church. And I want to say very clearly that this is something extremely serious for us to consider today. For everyone in our church to look at, this is deadly serious. Let me tell you why. Because I think we all can get the importance of men in our culture. Um, Absentee fathers are a problem. They cause issues. Um, I think we all can get the importance of having men who love their families like Jesus loves the church. I don't think I need to give you statistics on why we need to do this. What I do need to give you is clear biblical direction on the expectations of a husband in the household. This is a clear focal point point for our church, actually. And this is part of my philosophy, is that if you reach the man, you can get the family. And so that's why my target audience, although I want everyone to be a part of Redeeming Hope that wants to be, but my target audience is calling men to a higher standard as they follow Jesus. Because I think healthy men that are following Jesus can change generations in their life, in their proximity. They can change their children and their children's children and their children's children's children if they choose to follow Jesus and lead strong in their family. And I really believe that we have a crisis of leadership in the home, and it's because of the husbands. And I think that Christ sets a very high standard for husbands. And he also allows us and empowers us through his spirit to accomplish that high standard. But frankly, here's the deal. Frankly, I don't think many men are meeting that challenge of Christ because they're not being called to it. And so today I want to share with you, this is the challenge and the expectation. And then men, I want to challenge you to meet that I want to challenge you to strive for that by the power of God's Spirit that lives inside of you. But I want to really challenge you today to see the standard of God and of Christ as it relates to husbands. And then I want to challenge you that you have everything you need to meet that standard. So let's do this, okay? Our main point for today is this. Husbands are called to practice humble servant leadership in their household, to lay down their rights and freedoms to serve their family, and to lead all members of their household towards investing in God's kingdom. Now, let me tell you what my goal is for today. This is the goal for our sermon. We, as a church, want to see husbands embrace their God-given role as leaders, and we want husbands to model servanthood in their household. Like Jesus, husbands are sacrificing their freedom, their comfort, their convenience to sacrificially serve their family. And then here's what happens. Out of the trust that generates from selfless service, they then lead and they grow their family's influence. They direct their family's energies towards expanding God's kingdom as he's changing the world. See, husbands are ensuring that their household is seeking to come under the authority of King Jesus while also dying to themselves and loving their wife more than themselves. That is the goal. That's the trajectory. That's the kind of end, that's the end zone for us, okay? So we're going to talk about three things today. We're going to talk about how husbands reject the passivity of Adam. Next, we're going to look at how husbands lay down their life through loving service. And finally, we're gonna, that's where primarily where we're going to spend the time is lay down their life through loving service. And then finally, we're going to look at briefly how husbands lead their household into kingdom investment. So first, let's look at how husbands reject, are called to reject the passivity of Adam. Now, 
As we begin, we have to go back to Genesis to understand the marriage dynamics and the household dynamics. And one of the things that's very interesting is that naming, when you name something, that's very important in ancient Near Eastern history. It's, it's actually very significant. If you give someone or something a name, you give them an identity. And if you would give them a name or an identity, the, in ancient Near Eastern culture, it says that you have a responsibility to protect that person or thing and to care for it, okay? So it's really designed, it's like if you were to have a child and you name that child, then in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it says because you named it, because you gave that child an identity, you have a responsibility to care for it and to order such things in which that child will thrive. Now, this is what's crazy that God did in Genesis 2, and it's beautiful, is that Adam named all the animals. He brought every animal to Adam, and Adam named them. It was an act of careful um, I, I want to use this word carefully, dominance. But it was supposed to be a dominance in such a way that caused these animals to thrive. It's saying, I, I am going to name you, and now I have a responsibility to care for you and order the world in such a way as you, each animal that I named that I now have a responsibility for, will thrive, right? So it's really careful um, care for the world to, so that things would thrive. And it says, Adam named all the animals, but in Genesis 2, it said that a helper was not found for Adam. So what happened is God created Eve. He created the woman, and then he brought her to Adam. And this is what Adam says when he sees her. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the capstone of this naming process was the woman. And what this means is that when Adam spoke her name, it meant that Adam was supposed to care for her. He was supposed to protect her, to lead her into her own thriving and into her own flourishing, which would then cause the world to thrive and flourish. Adam's responsibility was to lift Eve up. It was to lift and care for her. But here's what happened, and here's where the tragedy happened, is that Adam rejected this direction in Genesis 3. You see, what happened was is that Adam was supposed to protect his wife. But what we see in Genesis 3 is that Eve was tempted to disobey God. There was one rule that God had for the whole of creation. It's that Adam and Eve not eat of one specific tree and the fruit of one specific tree. But Eve was tempted by an evil certain who he, serpent who we later find was Satan himself. And what happened was, is that Eve was tempted and she spoke to this evil serpent. And then Eve was deceived. She started to think incorrectly. And then Eve disobeyed the one command that God gave them and she ate of this forbidden fruit. But then we see this. That's Genesis 3, verse 6. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. My friends, have you ever watched a movie and you see two characters talking to one another and maybe they're talking about something very personal and then the camera expands out and you see that they're in a crowded place with everybody looking at them. And it's typically very comical. Rachel and I watched the Blues Brothers uh, a month or two ago and they're sitting in a sauna and they're having this really intense personal conversation with someone, but then it pulls out and then there's like 20 people in suits in the sauna. And, and that, that's kind of a comedic thing. And it's a, it's a device in, in videography 
and, and in storytelling where you, you tell a story, but then you also add to it at the very end by saying there's other people in the room. That's exactly what's happening here. You see this conversation between Eve and the serpent, back and forth, back and forth, and then all of a sudden at the very end we find, and our hearts sink when we find that Adam was there the whole time. My friends, the fall of man was not Eve eating of the fruit. It was not Eve eating of the fruit. It was Adam's passivity and his disobedience not to protect his wife from the temptations and misdirections of Satan. Adam was passive. Adam let her be tempted. Adam did not protect his wife. He was completely passive. He was completely dismissive of her descent into doubt, even when she began to speak incorrect things, even when she's saying, well, well God told us not even to touch the tree or touch the fruit. No, he didn't say that. Adam was incorrect. He was completely dismissive of her descent into doubt. He did not protect her like he should have. Now listen to this. Adam exercised the authority to name her, but he did not exercise the authority to protect her. Let me share that again. Adam exercised the authority to name her, but he did not exercise the authority to protect her. And all of humanity fell due to the, not due to the wife's sin, but the husband's sin of passivity to let it get to that point. And we're going to see later how Romans 5 actually points to the man's sin of disobedience, not to the woman's sin of disobedience. And here's the deal. The reality is that every man that is born today lives in the shadow of Adam. Every man has the tendency to shirk from responsibility. And like Adam, let their wife fend for themselves, especially spiritually and emotionally. This is our natural inclination. We live in the shadow of Adam. This is how Adam was supposed to protect and care for her. He was passive and humanity fell. However, that is not the end of the story, which is, thank God that it's not the end of the story. Romans 5 shares these words. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification or being declared innocent and life for all men. Listen to this. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So we see he's talking about Adam here. He says it was the man's disobedience, his rejection of his call that all of us are made sinners. We all bear the burden and the guilt and the brokenness of this world because of Adam's disobedience and his passivity. However, what we see is that by one man's obedience, by Jesus' obedience, the new Adam, the better Adam, who truly passed the test in the garden, then many will be made righteous. Christ enters the scene as God incarnate. And look at what he does. Look at how he takes ownership and responsibility and, and passivity. He rejects passivity and embraces action as a man. Look at what he does. It says, he resolves brokenness that he did not create. Jesus comes into the world to resolve a brokenness that he did not create. He comes into the world to provide solutions to problems he did not cause. And he comes into the world to redeem a wayward people. He literally comes to die for his enemies. He dies for sinners, you and me. So we see that Jesus's 
actions are an ultimate rejection of passivity, that Jesus takes responsibility. He owns solutions. And men, as we follow in Christ's footsteps, that's the way to break from the shadow of Adam and the shadow of Adam's passivity and to live life as true men. So the first thing that we need to come to is to see that husbands reject the passivity of Adam. But not only that, husbands then have to lay their life down through loving service. They lay down their life through loving service. And this has kind of been the preamble for us to get to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at that again as we read it earlier. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we see that the life of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ is actually the model for husbands and wives and how they need to engage together. And the command is to love, the command for the husband is to love as Christ loved the church. This is so important for us to understand the role of husbands. It is vital. If we don't get this, nothing else makes sense. The, the example of Christ as he has died and saves the church is the example of how the husband should treat his wife. So a couple of questions, diagnostic questions, to give us some beginning perspective on this. What did Jesus do for the church? Well, what we find in the Gospels is that Jesus died for the church. This is what this text is saying as he gave himself up, right? So Jesus died for the church. When did Jesus die for the church? He died for the church before it even existed. The church formed years after Jesus was born. The church church formed um, after Christ died and rose again and ascended into heaven. Then the church was born. So do you see how the church formed after he rose again? Side note, this means that um, if you're a single man and you desire to get married, you can love your future wife by acting sacrificially right now. Side note, bonus points. Um, What was the attitude of the people Jesus died for? The Bible says that while we were enemies of God, he died for us. They were enemies. My friends, the cross does not come easy for Jesus. The cross was not convenient for Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Eden was wrestling mightily, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And another question, did Jesus wait until the church was submissive to die for us? No, he died for us when we were his enemies, when we were opposed to him. After he died for us, how submissive is God's church to God sometimes? Sometimes we really struggle with that, don't we? You see, here's the thing. Husbands, this is how we need to look at our wife. Husbands, your wife's willingness to follow you does not determine your responsibility to serve her and love her to the death of your own personal desires, wants, comforts, and preferences. Nowhere in the scriptures am I commanded to make my sacrificial love contingent on her obedience. And this is where we come to the point of marriage and husbands. Marriage equals death. That's what you need to remember. If you get nothing else from the sermon, marriage equals death. If you are not ready to die to yourself, your comfort, your freedom, your convenience, then do not get married. Stay single until you're ready to take on that call. And husbands, if you are a husband and you are not dying to yourself right now, you're not dying to your comfort, not dying to your freedom, not dying to your convenience, then here's the deal. And this is, I got to be as plain and simple as it is. One of two things is true of you. You're either not yet a follower of Jesus 
and thus don't have the power to do any of those things. Or you are not being obedient to the call of Jesus on your life as a husband. So if you're not sacrificing, if you're not dying to yourself daily, you're either not a follower of Jesus, you're not being obedient to his call in your life. So the primary, the first metaphor of how husbands love is through self-sacrifice, like Jesus sacrificed himself. Every single day is a fight. Every single day is a death that is marked by self-sacrifice. This is the expectation of a husband. Now, in a little bit, we're going to get to very practical things on what this looks like, but I want you to look at what else the Bible says about how husbands are to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. And so uh, I want us to see what are the marks, what are the points of a self-sacrificing husband. Look with me at Colossians 3.19. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, actually, a lot of the things that we're going to look at over the next few minutes are actually just the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? Um, so, so, so actually, a lot of these things are rooted in the fruits of the Spirit. But this one is very clear. It's to be gentle. Love in gentleness. This, men, this is how you love your wives in gentleness, not being harsh with them. You need to be considerate of your wife's feelings. You need to be considerate on how you communicate, not just what you communicate. We talked about this. Actually, there's a, uh, a Netflix special that my wife and I like to watch. It's from Jerry Seinfeld. It's his newest one. And um, we like to watch comedies. And he talks, he has a whole bit on this idea of his tone. His wife is very critical of his tone. And he makes a joke that in the house that I paid for, I'm not allowed to talk how I, how I talk up here. He says, that's why I'm standing in front of you right now. Um, it's, it's kind of funny, but it actually speaks to something deeper in our culture that actually what we, what we communicate and how we communicate are kind of the same thing. So if, if I'm in a room with someone and they are dying, which I've been in the past month in a room with someone who's been dying, counseling their family, I'm not going to come at them with the tone of voice that I'm speaking right now. I'm going to talk gently. I'm going to talk quietly. I'm going to read a passage of scripture and I'm going to ask them, how are you doing? How are you feeling? You know that God loves you. He cares for you. He cares for your loved one. But if I'm speaking to men in our church who are called to be husbands, I'm going to have a different type of tone because I'm communicating different things in different times. Men, as you speak to your wives, you are not called to be harsh. Your tone matters. How you speak to her and care for her feelings, it matters. And you are called to be obedient to Jesus by not being harsh with your wife, but by being gentle and loving and caring towards them. Next, and we're going to look at this for a few minutes and break this down. Titus 2 is all about, First and Second Timothy and Titus is all about the church and the family, okay? So when he's writing to older men, he's writing to older men who are married. This is what he says. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And we're going to look at each of these and what these mean because this is a call to husbands on how they should live in the house. And you're supposed to be reasonable controlled, not anxious, but rather faithful to do what you said you were going to do regardless of the circumstances. And the first thing he says, older men are to be sober-minded. Here's the deal. Husbands, when you freak out, your family freaks out. And I actually need to own this, right? Even yesterday, um, I had a we had a change of plans. Rachel and I were supposed to go away for the weekend, and the cabin that we thought had res 
we had reserved. I had failed to reserve it, so I felt really bad. It was my fault. And I was really stressed because Rachel did some work to, for us to get away f- over a weekend. And I was really angry at myself. And I didn't filter that before I talked with Rachel about it. And she kind of got that raw emotion. And to be quite honest, it, it affected her negatively. And so what men, what we need is a release valve. That's not your wife when you're feeling stressed and frustrated. And I'm not saying hide your stress or frustration from your wife. You want to be emotionally available, but what you need to be is sober-minded. And there's certain points where we just aren't, right? Like the stress of life pushes in on us and we need a release valve. So I've got a couple of friends that I call when I'm really stressed and angry. And they're men and they're my friends and they're not my wife and they don't have as emotional of attachment to me as, as Rachel does, right? And as we do for one another. So that release valve helps me have a sober mind, kind of get all of the, the crazy thoughts out of my head first so that when I talk to Rachel about the problems, I've kind of already processed it a little bit. This is sober-minded. If you freak out, the family freaks out. Next, you're called to be sound of mind. So here's the deal. If you struggle, as most people in our church, and especially where we are and this time and place in our culture, if you struggle with PTSD, if you struggle with addiction, if you struggle with anger, if you struggle with hurt, if you struggle with mental illness or pornographic addictions, here's the deal. Men, husbands, it is your job to seek help in these areas, not to force your household to live under your mismanaged life and accommodate your childish passivity. Let me say that again. If you struggle with PTSD, any sort of addiction, anger, hurt, mental illness, or a pornography addiction. It is your job to seek help in these areas, not to force your household to live under your mismanaged life and chaotic life and accommodate your childish passivity. It is your job to do it. Sober-mindedness is a commandment of Christ. Not only that, but we see in Titus 2, you're called is to be dignified and self-controlled. When you are out of control, your family's out of control. And when you blame your anger on your family, it's like Adam being passive. You're being undignified. You're passing the buck off to your wife or your kids for your anger. Your wife and kids can be in complete chaos and you don't have to get angry about it. Look at the life of Jesus, his church. How often is Jesus' church angry and in chaos? But the Bible says that he is calm, he's compassionate, he is sober-minded, he's dignified and self-controlled. And here's the deal. When your wife has has to be the one in control, when your wife has to be the one that's self-controlled and holding the family together, it puts a weight of responsibility on her to care for the emotions of the entire household that is actually your responsibility to bear. And it will cause bitterness in your wife. And it will cause her not to follow you when you just push it off. Now, let me give you an example of this. I want you to think, uh, you're doing a project with your wife or your kids and you grab a 150-pound bag of sand. Okay, you go to Lowe's, you get 100, I don't know if they make them in 150 pounds, but you, you grab a 150 pound bag of sand, okay? And imagine, I don't think there's any man I know in Clarksville, that's Marion. I don't think there's any dude I know that would back that truck up with that 150 pound bag of sand and he would go in to his wife and say, oh yeah, there's a 150 pound bag of sand, it's your job to fix it. It's your job to get it where it needs to go. I don't think any man I know would ever do that. That would be absurd, right? Like you would figure it out. You'd either have the strength to pick up this 150-pound bag or you'd like call a dude or something like that and you'd come over, you'd each grab it and you'd move it where it 
needs to be. Now, if you wouldn't do that with physical things, why in the world do you do that with emotional things? Passing the buck off to your wife is wrong. What you're bringing into your relationship is emotional turmoil, psychological turmoil, spiritual turmoil. And a lot of times what I see men do is back up this heavy weight of of caring for their family's emotions and spiritual life and peace, and they leave it in the front door and they say, it's your job to fix it. It's your job to handle it. And if you wouldn't do it with a bag of sand, why in the world are you doing it with your emotions, with your addictions, with your problems, and forcing your family to live under your mismanaged life? That is a weight that your wife is not intended to bear. So if you wonder why your wife is sometimes bitter with you, maybe this is one of the reasons why. Maybe this is something that you are called to take up, a mantle that you are called to carry. Passing the buck to your wife for the self-control of your family is wrong. He also says he wants, he's calling us to be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Faith, your commitment to Jesus affects your household. Like you need to be reading the Bible consistently, praying consistently, spending time with Jesus. It will affect your household when you don't do those things. Not only that, but you need to love your family. And love is not a feeling, it's a choice. Consistently. Wake up every day and say, I love my family and I'm going to sacrifice for them. And, it, and, and your actions towards them, your compassion towards them, needs to be motivated by a deep, abiding love for your household. And finally, he said steadfastness. And we look at the steadfastness of Christ as our example. You serve your family based on your commitment that you made to them, not based on how you're feeling that day. You serve based on your commitment, your steadfastness, your faithfulness. You put the ring on the finger, you made a commitment, and you are responsible to hold on to that and to accomplish that by the power of Jesus that lives inside of you. Now, here's why we do this. Why are we doing all of this? This is, again, sober-minded, self-controlled, dignified, um, at peace, those kinds of things. Um, We get back to Ephesians 5 to see what the purpose of all of this is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that Jesus might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word, so that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that the church might be holy and without blemish. My friends, Jesus died for the benefit of the church. He died to make the church holy. He is working even now to purify his bride, to purify the church, to refine her in preparation for spending eternity with him. This is that expansive kingdom that we've been talking about. My friends, husbands, you are called to die to yourself for the benefit of your wife to help her thrive. Husbands, you bear the brunt of the responsibility of your household. It is up to you to care for your wife by the power of God because Jesus cares for his church. Again, I'm going to say this again. Marriage equals death. And then we look and see how Christ and the church ties into marriage here with this next part of Ephesians 5. In the same way, just as Christ does all these things, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Now look with me. Just as Christ does the church. See how he keeps going back to Christ, back to Christ. Back to how Christ serves his church, works for the church. Because we are members of his body. Now, this is the callback to Genesis. This is why we started there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. My friends, 
we see in this callback to Genesis that the call of a marriage is to do three things. It's to leave, cleave, and weave. You are called to leave your father and mother. Cling to your wife. It says, hold fast to your wife. In, in, the, in the King James Version, it was cleave to your wife. Be joined with her. Cling to her. And then weave a new life together as one flesh. This is how you are to see yourself. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Leave your father and mother, cling, cleave to your wife, and weave a new life together as one flesh. It is fundamentally against our nature to love someone more than our own selves. We always have a tendency towards self-preservation, but loving our wives is loving ourselves if we believe that we are joined together with them as one person. This is vital to marriage. This is vital to leadership. Do you see how important it is to be a godly husband to see this idea of oneness and unity with your wife? And this is why Ephesians calls back to Genesis because on this Genesis passage that we are one flesh, husbands and wives, that flows, everything else flows out of that because Christ is unified with his church. My friend, sacrificial love is vital to a husband's leadership. But even being a follower of Jesus does not automatically change our natural inclination towards selfishness. And this is where we come to the very practical element of our sermon. And so, men, if you have a, a piece of paper or a pen, or you can write some notes down, um, these four points that are going to come up in just a second are going to be vital for us moving forward on what does it look like to love. See, right now we've been talking about being sober-minded and dignified, not being harsh, but being gentle, seeing how Christ and the church are coming together. But what does it actually mean? What are the practical next steps for us? I want to give you four practical steps on how you can serve your wife sacrificially and not just being an emotion, but an action. Because remember, Jesus gave himself up for us. Four ways that you can act to love your wife like Christ loves the church. First, actively believe. And remember, you are united with your wife as one flesh. First step, foundational. You have to remember and believe this consistently. So here's the deal. The problems in your marriage are not her problems. They're our problems. Do you understand that? The problems in your marriage are not her problems. She's this, she's that. You both are one. So her problems are your problems. It's our problems. We have got a problem. And you see, here's the thing. When you engage in conflict, the real conflict is actually outside of your marriage trying to get in and cause division and destroy your marriage. It's not your partner. Husbands, the problem is not your wives. It is the fact that Satan and the forces of darkness want to destroy the family, destroy your household. And so the conflict is not between you two. The conflict is coming outside of you two. The moment you can turn that on its head and say, look, we are not enemies. We are one flesh. We are one unit. We are one household. We are together. And actually, we need to pray and see how the problem is, is probably both of our issues, but really the deeper problem is sin and brokenness pressing in from the outside, trying to destroy our marriage. Man, that will change how you fight. That will change how you argue. This union should motivate your response to your wife in the midst of conflict. That's the first thing. Actively believe and remember you are united with your wife as one flesh. Next, put her needs ahead of your needs like Jesus. So you do this in small things, right? What to watch, movies, right? Um, food, what do you want to eat? Um, pr 
preferences, right? Even something like bedtime. I'm actually still working on this because Rachel, man, <laughs> Rachel's dream is to go to bed at 10.30 every night. And I am a late owl. I always have been. And I have been really trying to change that. And I'm not always successful with it, but I'm trying to accommodate Rachel. I'm trying to accommodate her preferences. That's part of me being a good husband. And sometimes I'm not always a good husband and I'm trying to be right? I'm trying to do these things, but this is one way we can do that is accommodating their preferences, like even going to bed earlier. That's small things, but then there's also big things that you need to put her needs ahead of your own. Maybe you're in the midst of moving or a job transition. You guys need to be on the same page. You can't be a house divided against yourself. You need to be communicative. You need to talk about if you're moving or you're in a job transition. Taking care of the kids. This is a big one. Um, look, here's the deal. Most men in our church, you work. And actually, most women in the church, you work too. And if, if you're not working, but you have kids, you have like more than a full-time job anyway. So most of you have, most ladies in our church have multiple full-time jobs, one of which is taking care of their children, another which is working a job as well outside of that to earn money. Um, so, so there's a lot of work going on. I don't think there's too many people that are lazy. They're just sitting on their butts in our church, right? Here's the deal. Husbands, when you come home, you look at your wife and say, I'm tired. And she looks at you and says, well, I'm tired. And it's like, okay, you're tired. I'm tired. Here's your response. How can I help? That needs to be your response. When you come home, you're on second shift. You are not checked out. You don't get to do that. When you come home, it's you're tired. I'm tired. How can I help you? What needs to be done? How can I roll up my sleeves and put hand to the plow? Because that's what Jesus does for us. This is servant leadership and household chores. I initially put chores in the small things, but actually chores are a big thing in marriage. And husbands, if you walk home and your house is a mess, your first response needs to be, how can I fix this mess? It's not your wife's household to solve the problem. It's your household to solve the problem. So if you need to pick up a mop, if you need to pick up a broom, if you need to clean the dishes, if you need to do the laundry, if stuff needs to get done, it's your responsibility. Now, you don't have to do everything, of course, um, but it falls under your responsibility, your purview. And the best way to lead is by serving, right? So the best way to encourage your family to do the dishes more often is to do the dishes more often. Men, you do it. And they'll follow your lead. It's servant leadership. The goal is to die to yourself. Also, one more thing, finances. Um, men, you might not make as much as your wife. Maybe your wife is better at managing the finances than you are on the day-to-day. But at the end of the day, you need to own the solutions to money problems. When you lay your head on the pillow, you need to own the solutions to the money problems of your household. Even if your wife manages the day-to-day stuff or you guys split responsibilities there, there's one person that needs to own it and you need to own it. So if there's a problem with the finances, you need to be the one that figures out the solution. All of this is dying to yourself. Put her needs ahead of your needs like Jesus. Thirdly, practice the spiritual disciplines together. That's praying together, reading together, learning together, giving together, and serving together. Those are the primary ways. So pray together. It will change your marriage when you pray and read the Bible together. It will astronomically change everything about it. And so let me give you an example. So this week, I typically wake up in the mornings and I cook breakfast for Rachel and I pack her lunch, make sure she has a lunch, carry her stuff out to the car and get her going. She leaves early enough to where it doesn't impact any of my morning breakfast meetings. But this one night, I was up a little too late and I overslept. I I didn't wake up to to help her get out. And I I felt kind of bad about that. But when I woke up, she was on her drive to work 
And so I called her and, and we prayed together on the phone and prayed for a day and I encouraged her to listen to some scriptures. Because typically as we eat breakfast, I'll read a passage of scripture or devotional and we'll talk through that and we'll say a quick prayer and then she'll go. But it's my responsibility to initiate that stuff. And so even if I missed like making her breakfast one morning, I still called her and tried to pray with her and encourage her to read. So praying and reading together. Also, you don't actually have to read the same things together. You don't have to sit down and do like a, an hour-long Bible study. But, you know, Rachel's reading through the Old Testament right now through a reading plan, and I'm following the church-wide reading plan. And we don't always read the same things, but actually if you look at our text messages, most of them are just funny memes back and forth to one another lists of stuff to get from the grocery store, and Bible passages. That's all we do. Rachel just texts me Bible passages, and we'll text them back and forth just to share it with one another that we're reading. It's just important to keep that communication open. Learn together. You need to go to a local church together. You need to hear the teaching of God's Word together. And the great thing is, even if you're working on a Sunday morning, you can always go back and watch this later. But men, you need to lead your wives and your families into learning about Jesus together. And Rachel and I practice this. We watch my sermons. I still need this. Like, I need this right now. Not just for all of us. This isn't me speaking from a position of, I've arrived. This is me saying, I'm challenged by this message. And so I'm going to watch this with Rachel. And I'm challenged by it. I'm actually taking notes on most of the sermons as I'm preaching them because at the end of the day, I need to remember this stuff too. So here's the deal. You need to learn together as a family. You need to give together. We actually coordinate about our family's finances. And we, need, we actually are in alignment on how we give and what we give. And then finally, serving together. And a prime example of this is I'm filming this in the middle of the day before we go to a cabin for the weekend. And um, everybody that volunteers with the recording is, is working. So, so Rachel's sitting right here, running, sacrificially taking time out of her day to help me run these slides and make sure this stuff gets done. Serve together as well. Finally, provide for your household. And men, I'm going to talk about a few things. Physically available, emotionally present, spiritually involved, and financially engaged. Physically available. If you have a problem in the house, you have to seek to solve it. Like I said, pick up a mop, pick up a broom. If there's a leak, take care of it, engage with it. Not saying that you have to do everything. What I'm saying is you have to own the solution. So even if you say, hey, hun, could you help me with this? It's you saying it's actually my responsibility to do it. And then you're just inviting your wife to come and help you. And that gives her the freedom to say yes or to say no. But in order for you to do that, you actually have to be physically present in your house. So this means not staying overly late at work for long periods of time. Not going out and doing personal hobbies multiple nights a week, every week that take you away from your family. Like this is very important. You need to be physically there to see what's going on, to engage, to be emotionally and spiritually present. You need to be physically in the room. Don't lock yourself away from your family. Don't shut them out. Don't just retreat, but be there present with your family. And I want you to consider, if you do go away, I want you to consider time away and how that will impact them. Like if you're going to go on a recreational trip with friends, you need to consider how it's going to impact your wife and impact your family. Being physically available. Next, to provide, you need to be emotionally present. If you are in an argument, husbands, it is your initiative to try to resolve it. You need to be the one that goes to your wife and says, I am sorry. You need to take the first step. You need to say, you need to lay out the truth that says, I love you, I care for you, I want this marriage to work. 
and we need to resolve this problem. And actually, the problem isn't between us. It's outside of us. It's sin and brokenness seeking to destroy our marriage. Let's partner together to solve this problem. Let's work together. That's what you need to do, husbands. Share your feelings. Don't hide them. This is not being weak to share feelings. It's being like Jesus. Jesus was compassionate and said he was compassionate. Jesus got angry, and he literally did get angry and expressed that in a healthy way. Jesus wept in front of other people. This is not weakness. It is being like Jesus to express your emotions in healthy ways, emotionally present. Next, to be spiritually involved. My friends, if you notice that your family is slacking spiritually, if they're not getting time in the Word, they're not praying, you must first look at yourself and then lovingly invite them to join you as you follow Jesus. This is discipleship. Discipleship is not dictatorship. And men, you can try to be a dictator in your family and it will not work. But what you can say is, as I'm following Jesus, do you want to come with me? Do you want to read this? As you're sitting at the dinner table once a week, open up the Bible to a simple passage. Read it. Ask, ask others what they're reading. Say, hey, did you get a chance to be in the Word this week? If not, maybe you could try to carve out 10 minutes. How can I help you get 10 minutes in the Word tonight? Do you see that? See how it's a different way of just saying, you need to be in the Bible. You need to be reading this or that. You need to be spiritually involved and in inviting people to follow you as you follow Jesus. And finally, financially engaged. Don't bring problems, bring solutions to the table. You know, if you have, this is a leadership 101. If you have a problem, you seek to resolve it, bring solutions, and then talk about it. So if there's a problem, talk with your spouse, own the finances, be financially engaged. My friends, there's a lot here on this point, and this was the bulk of our sermon, as husbands lay down their lives through loving service. But it is so important because this is the model of Jesus. This is the call of Jesus for husbands. Finally, and a very brief point, last point here, husbands lead their household into kingdom investment. So how do you lead? We already looked at this. You reject the passivity of Adam. You embrace active servant leadership like Jesus. Then you will have the leadership capital to lead your family. That's how you do it. And husbands get this backwards a lot of times. So you might be inclined after hearing a sermon like this to institute some sort of dictatorship and rules that either lasts a few hours or a few days and then fizzles out. And it's miserable for everyone. That's not how you lead. You lead through service. And you lead, and as you build the capital to lead your family, you lead into seeking God's kingdom first. And that's where we come back to Matthew 6 again. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So really, the call is, what do you do with your time, your talents, and your treasure? So what do you and your spouse do the most with your time? What do you spend your most, the, the energy and your natural abilities on? And finally, what do you and your spouse spend your money and your resources on, right? So if you want to you prioritize God's kingdom in all of those areas. So take what you do and prioritize God's kingdom first. Read the Bible, pray, be a part of a local family of faith. Your talents, what your natural abilities are, how you work together, use them to serve God's local church first and foremost. Serve the kingdom first. And your treasure, what you spend your money on, consistently partner together and tithe to your local church. Do it. Be a part of it. Partner together with it. So here's men, husbands, here's a diagnostic for your family. It might be good for you to think through this this week. If you're seeking the kingdom first, look at your calendar, look at your pocketbook, and look at your conversations. What do you do? What do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time doing and thinking about and dreaming about? So rejecting passivity sacrificial service, and then leading into kingdom investment. My friends, these things do not come 
naturally. And men, if you're listening to this and you're feeling discouraged, let me encourage you right now. It is impossible to do this. Apart from Christ, it is impossible to do this. But here's the beauty of the gospel. What we see is that Jesus has already been the better husband that we could not be. Jesus has already done all the work for us. Jesus rejected the passivity of Adam that all men live in the shadow of. He rejected it and embraced active service. Jesus was the ultimate servant leader who valued our eternal destiny above himself. He died sacrificially on the cross for us when we were still sinners and we were still his enemies and in rebellion against him. Finally, Jesus leads us. He models for us what humble kingdom engagement looks like. He literally said, as I have been sent, so send I you. So here's where we land today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're watching this, first off, thank you for making it so far. I think we're at about 50 minutes. I started my timer a minute or two late. You cannot know true love until you know the source of true love, which is God. We see in 1 John, it says that God is love. That God is love. And Jesus is God. And so when you know Jesus, you know love. And when you know the source of love, you have an infinite capacity to love others. And so you can lead your family today by following Jesus. This is turning away from all the other ways that you have tried to save yourself. Turning towards Jesus as the ultimate source of your love and saying, I can't do this on my own and giving your life to him. This is repentance and faith. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, if you're joining us and you are a follower of Jesus, you can be a follower and you can still be selfish, self-centered and damaging your wife and family. You are called to lead your household and we see what the standard is. You have the standard We see that Jesus has already met that standard and then you have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you that mediates the power of God for you to meet that standard. So this means that if you're not fulfilling the role of a husband like Jesus, then you are not being submissive to God. This is what that means because you're a follower of Jesus. You have the power to do this. Jesus has already done it for you. This means you're not being submissive to God. Look with me at James 4. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. My friends, so often pride keeps us from drawing near to God and serving our household well. The call for you today, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to submit to God, to sacrifice your life for your wife, for your family, and you will find ultimate strength and power, and fulfillment in Christ. So as we conclude, single women, this is the expectation of of a husband if you are so desiring one, and this is the standard for your married friends that come to you and are struggling in their marriage. This is how you can encourage them. Married women, this is the expectation you have of your husband. And this is high standards for your husband. And here's the deal, and we're going to look at this next week about submission and headship, but Tell him and encourage him that he can do this. If your husband is a follower of Jesus, he can do this. He has the Holy Spirit filled in him. And what he needs is your respect so that he can love you well. It's a tandem thing. You need his love in order to respect him well, right? And so what you can do to help encourage him is to say, look, we listen to this message. It's hard, but I love you and I believe that you can do this. That is honoring him and positioning him in a way that's, that's encouraging him towards these things. Single men. This is preparation for you, and this also allows you to counsel your married friends. But here's the deal. Don't get married unless you're ready to die, unless you're ready to do this. This is a serious call. Men, married men, husbands, 
Here's my word for you. You put a ring on her finger. You enjoy the benefits of her company. You enjoy her affection, her companionship, her care, her trust, and her love. This is a high honor to be married and entrusted with this very serious role of a husband. And here's what can happen. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the capacity to abuse her, to deny your role as a husband, and to make it really hard for her to follow you. That You have the capacity to do that. Or you have the capacity to love her to the death of yourself, to embrace the active servanthood role of a husband, and you can make it really easy and a joy to follow you. And it is your choice. You see, husbands are called to practice humble, servant leadership in their household, to lay down their rights and freedoms to serve their family, and to lead all members of their household towards investing in God's kingdom. See, we want to see husbands embrace their God-given role as leaders and model servanthood in their household. Like Jesus, husbands sacrifice their freedom, their comfort, and convenience to serve their family. And out of the trust that then generates from the selfless service, husbands lead. They, they grow their household's influence and direct the family's energies towards investing in God's kingdom first and foremost. Husbands are ensuring that their household is seeking to come under the authority of Jesus, while also dying to themselves and loving their wife more than themselves to truly become a household that changes the world. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.